What's up, all you rad dudes and dudettes? It's a bonus episode of 90s Disney. Our first bonus episode. It's true. It's me, AJ, <laughs> along with Mike, to say hello. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, so as you all know, uh, we did our kind of April Fool's gag and did our Atlantis episode uh, featuring our interview with Tab Murphy. And today we have a very special treat because Tab was very gracious to hook me up with the co-director of films such as Atlantis, The Lost Empire, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and of course, Beauty and the Beast. And it is none other than Kirk Wise on the show. Man, how incredible is that? We're less than a year old. We already have an interview with Kirk Wise. Uh, man, that that's awesome. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and play the interview for you. Uh, we we mostly focus on Atlantis. We talk a little bit about Hunchback at the end, and uh, surprisingly, you learn a lot as a bonus about Cranium Command <laughs> from the Wonders of Life Pavilion in Epcot. Can never not learn enough about that. Yes, yeah, so uh, we're gonna go ahead and roll that for you. So please enjoy our interview with Kirk Wise. Hello, 90s Disney's listeners. We have a very, very special treat for you. Uh, going along with our recent Atlantis episode and our interview with Tab Murphy and reaching back to our Hunchback episode, I am very pleased to be joined by a very special guest. Uh, you know him as the co-director of Atlantis, Lost Empire, Hunchback, Notre Dame, and the Academy Award Best Film nominated Beauty and the Beast. Please welcome to the show Kirk Wise. Kirk, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Awesome. So... As we kind of get rolling, I just want to get a little bit of your your background. Um, obviously, when people hear your name in relation to Disney, they hear Kirk and Gary, uh, yeah. Gary Truesdale. So mm-hmm. how did you guys first um, come to become collaborators and co-directors? Well, I, I knew Gary. Uh, uh, I first met Gary uh, at CalArts. Uh, he was a third-year student when I was in my first year. And even though we didn't hang out, you know, we, we were friendly. And I, I, I always thought... His drawings were really funny and his animation was really funny. And we didn't start working again, working together again until, um, gosh, I, I would say it was the, the late eighties. Um, uh, Gary had been in the, in the, uh, uh, story department for, for uh, a number of years, uh, doing storyboards at Disney. And I had just transitioned from animation into uh, story. And one of the earliest things uh, that that uh, I ended up doing was being paired up with uh, with Gary Trousdale to work on um, uh, some Roger Rabbit short ideas. It was uh, shortly after the movie came out and the movie was a big success. And uh, Disney was really, you know, they were really hot to try uh, to to uh, to get more Roger Rabbit stuff out there in, in the marketplace. Um so uh, several teams of storyboard artists uh, were assigned to just come up with with an idea for a Roger Rabbit and a Roger Rabbit and Baby Herman short and and run run with it just just uh, conceive and write and storyboard the whole thing and uh, uh, Gary and I uh, uh, were kind of I think we were sort of given this concept um, but uh, uh, the the sort of short version of it was. It was uh, uh, Roger Rabbit is is pushing Baby Herman in his uh, uh, baby carriage, and uh, while he's going to get them ice cream, the baby carriage uh, uh, rolls away, and the whole thing was a big chase of Roger Rabbit trying to catch up with Baby Herman's baby carriage. So there's a lot of slapstick, a lot of a lot of destruction, and uh, 
even though um, our short didn't get picked to to go into production, uh, that was the first time we had actually collaborated. Um, and it was a really good relationship. We had a, a, a lot of fun working together. And so they paired us up again um, on this uh, uh, pre-show down at Epcot Center for an attraction called uh, Cranium Command. Cranium Command went through, you know, a, a big upheaval. They, they had a whole uh, show that was written and animated, and uh, uh, the Disney executives, the higher-ups, were, were not happy with it. Michael didn't like it. Jeffrey didn't like it. They didn't. Uh, Roy Disney didn't like it. And I think the animation was done by a studio um, up in San Francisco called Colossal Productions and or Colossal Films, I think. And, uh, you know, they, they produced some really good stuff. Um, but this particular short, you know, just was not to anybody's liking. They didn't like the design. They didn't like the voices. They didn't like the message. It just didn't work. Um, so they kind of threw Gary and I on it. And uh, they said, we want you to, to rework this, this pre-show, this animated pre-show for this attraction. And we said, well, do we have to keep any of the stuff that was done before? And they said, no. So we basically rebuilt it from the ground up. The, the only thing that we were told we had to keep was the name of the main character, which was general knowledge, and the overall theme of stress management. <laughs> Coming from a guy who's yelling at you constantly. Yeah, coming from a guy who's, who's screaming at you all the time. And that was actually that was actually our invention. We the, the, uh, 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 we were the ones who came up with the notion of, of, you know, wouldn't it be kind of funny if this guy is trying to teach you how to lower your stress is just is just hollering at you constantly like a like a drill sergeant. And so so uh, uh, that uh, became general knowledge's character. And uh, gosh, I even think. I, I briefly, I believe, I believe, uh, uh, Rob Minkoff was actually, it's like, we storyboarded it. Um, and I think Rob Minkoff at initially was assigned to direct it because he was really looking to direct something. Um, and he ended up getting the opportunity to direct the second Roger rabbit short, which was roller coaster rabbit, but he had to relocate to Florida to do that. And that left kind of a vacuum on this cranium command project. And they offered it to me and Gary. And said, you know, you, you basically you're the most familiar with it. Why don't you just just, uh, you know, uh, see it through to the end. So that was our first directing collaboration. And that was a quick project too, like like a five month turnaround, I believe I read. Uh, yeah, I think even less than that. I think it was something like three months. It was it was it was really short, really really short. But but uh, we got we got really lucky because um, uh, at at that same time, uh, uh, feature animation was in production on the Rescuers Down Under. And they were going through uh, a lot of story changes. They had they they sort of had to had to tear it apart and start over again. And a lot of the animators uh, uh, didn't have anything to do. So we actually had some of the top animators uh, uh, at Disney working on our little short film. We had Andreas Deja. We we had we had uh, uh, Chris Wall, uh, Chris Bailey, um, <laughs> Pete Doctor. Uh, it was a, uh, it was kind of an all-star cast. Um, and the short turned out to be a lot of fun. Brian McEntee art directed it and we ended up working with him again on, on, uh, Beauty and the Beast and everybody just really got into the spirit of it. We, we did, had sort of a mixed media approach where we were doing, uh, traditional animation combined with cutout animation, you know, and, and, and found images kind of in, in a sort of cutout, funny, silly Monty Python style, 
Um, and we made sure that we kept the pace of the of the short really, really fast, you know, just just throwing, you know, one thing after another uh, at the audience. And uh, when it was done and and they installed it down in Florida, people really responded well to it. It got it got a lot of laughs. The, the attraction was was very popular. Uh, you know, I think that thing ran for like 14 years. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, I have to bring it up, too, just because I, I read this when I was doing my research. You were a voice in the show itself. I was because after after doing <laughs> after uh, uh, working on the uh, storyboards for the uh, pre-show, we got asked to go down to Florida and work with Jerry Reese, who was uh, revamping the main show. And Jerry Reese was is a, is an amazing artist and an amazing director who uh, I first got to work with on Brave Little Toaster when I was you know a very very young animator fresh out of Cal Arts, and so this was the opportunity to to work with Jerry again. And Jerry's a wonderful guy, really easy to work with, and he and and you know he he has terrific ideas, but at the same time he also gives you a lot of creative freedom. So so he's really really a joy to work with. And so uh, Gary and I did storyboards for the main show, and and came up with a lot of the concepts that 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 ended up in the main show. Like uh, uh, some of the casting ideas were ours, like having George Went play play the uh, uh, play the the stomach, and and uh, Bob Goldthwait play play Adrenaline. Um, so that was that was really fun, and when Jerry was, was recording all the dialogue for the main show, um, he recorded a scratch track first and I provided just sort of the temporary voice of the hypothalamus and, uh, uh, Jerry liked the voice so much. He just, he just decided to keep it. <laughs> so yes, my boy, I'm the voice of the hypothalamus. This, uh, this, you know, spindly kind of, kind of morose, uh, uh, robot, um, who's constantly, you know, popping up every now and again, every now and again during the show and, and giving, uh, giving, uh, tips to, to Buzzy, the pilot of the 13 year old's brain, you know, who, who, who's kind of the star of the whole show. Very cool. So I don't want this to turn to the Cranium Command podcast, I guess. <laughs> but like I said, I, I, I read a lot of that, especially the, 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 the kind of that's where you guys got started. So I did want to make sure we touched on it. So I figured you'd go there once I asked the question. So, oh, sure. <laughs> so, Another thing I just want to bring up is, in a general sense, I think when a lot of people hear film director, they they, they get what that is. You're behind the camera, you're directing actors. Um, but I think fewer people understand the f- complete role of what an animation film director does. Can you give me, you know, just kind of the ten thousand foot overview of of really how that differs from just you know directing actors? Well, you're you're uh, in some ways it's it's very similar because because ultimately it's all about. Uh, uh, character and storytelling so you're uh but we're just uh, kind of kind of using a different process uh, to achieve the same result which which ultimately we hope are, are characters that the audience engages with and, and and a story that really uh transports them emotionally um so the director's job is is to to uh work with and interface with on a daily basis a a uh sometimes very large, uh, team of artists who are, uh, helping you tell your story. And, and since animation, uh, uh, kind of, kind of moves in, in almost a product, at least traditional animation moves in almost like a production line, uh, type of process. Uh, 
um, you're kind of working with a different team of artists uh, during during each phase. Even though there's some overlap, uh, it, it, it's uh, each 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 uh, phase of, of animation production. You're sort of working with a with a with a different team. Um, so day to day, you might be working with uh, the storyboard artists and uh, uh, giving them suggestions on on how to stage a a, a particular shot. You might want to you might want a different angle. You might want a uh, a different expression. As a director, you 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 often find yourself contributing ideas for gags or or, or business, um, and then uh, as the storyboards uh, as the rough storyboards come through, we sit and uh, work with an editor, just like a live action film director does, who cuts all the boards together into. Uh, uh, what back then we called a story reel and nowadays people call an animatic, um, uh, which is basically the whole movie kind of in, in comic strip form, uh, uh, told, uh, through storyboards with temporary, with usually with temporary sound effects and, and temp music and, and temp voices, just to give you an idea of how, how the movie is playing. And, uh, that's a process again, where as a director, you kind of push and pull. You're 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 looking at this thing. It's like sculpture. You 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 start to kind of form it into a a uh, uh, kind of a cohesive whole. You you find parts that 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 aren't working that you might want to discard, and you find parts that that inspire you uh, to uh, to come up with new ideas. So you might uh, you might find yourself. Uh, uh, Asking a storyboard artist to to add some sketches or, or or you know create a new little comedy moment or emotional moment in a sequence, just because of the way uh, uh, it plays in in the story reel. So it's very interactive. It's very additive. It's very uh, it's very um, uh, uh, iterative. I think that's the word. <laughs> Meaning we do a lot of versions of something before uh, uh, before settling on on uh, you know what we're going to do. Um, uh, we work the, with we work with the actors the same way you would work with a live action actor, except that we're not uh, uh, giving them directions on a set. Instead, we're we're usually behind a pane of glass, uh, giving them direction in a dark recording studio, and they're standing there in the middle of the studio. Uh, with the lights low in front of a microphone and a and a music stand with their script pages on it, and uh, uh, oftentimes it's just them. You know, we, we don't have the luxury of of uh, getting all these actors in one room and recording them all at once. They've all got they've all got busy schedules and and are sometimes you know in different states or different locations doing uh, doing a movie. I think we had to travel. Uh, Gosh, I think when we were recording Demi Moore for for Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, we tr- uh, we recorded in L.A. and Seattle and Florida. You know, we were basically just kind of following her around <laughs> because it takes such a long time. Mm-hmm. But but one of the things I think actors really appreciate about working in animation is that you know they can basically show up in their pajamas and <laughs> and they don't have to sit in hair and makeup. And uh, they can have fun. They can cut loose. They can they they can really be be creative. And we always encouraged a lot of impro- improvisation. And and uh, even though we would always record the script as written, uh, we were always trying to find ways to kind of loosen it up and make it feel more natural and more conversational. And if there were little asides or little little uh, uh, 
additions to the dialogue that the actor wanted to contribute, we were very open to that. So, so in that respect, that's very much like, like uh, working in live action. Um, and then, you know, to, 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 uh, kind of, kind of, uh, we, we work with, uh, you know, we work with a production designer who helps us create the world for the, for the story to take place. in. uh, we work with a composer who, who's going to create, you know, the, 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 the mood and the atmosphere, um, of a particular sequence. And, uh, we work with a sound designer who, who adds that, that, that kind of, uh, uh, really wonderful layer, uh, layer of, of polish to everything. And, uh, uh, just by, by the sound effects that they choose, um, make the world just feel that more believable and, and that, that more involving. So <laughs> I guess the short answer is a lot of it is the same, but, but, uh, but a lot of it is different. Very cool. So, Approaching Atlantis, you've just come off your second animated musical. Now you're going to make an action movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we we talked to Tab Murphy, the writer, and he talked about the lunch you guys had, where you started, you know, kind of throwing these ideas. What was it that drew you personally to telling Atlantis as your story for this kind of action adventure film? Uh, you mean just the topic of it, right? Of Atlantis? Um, well, I think I think it was it was. Uh, uh, born out, out of out of our kind of uh, collective desire to do a a adventure film in in the vein of something like journey to the center of the earth um uh and kind of combine that with with the the sort of you know guys on a mission type of movie like like uh the dirty dozen where where a group of specialists uh, uh have to accomplish a seemingly impossible task uh we all love those types of movies and that, and, and, uh, it was our desire to, to make one of those types of movies. Um, and I think Atlantis appealed, appealed to us. I, I know it certainly appealed to me, um, <laughs> because, uh, growing up as a kid, I, I, I always loved that Leonard Nimoy show. It was called in search of where every week, uh, <laughs> uh, Leonard Nimoy would, would, uh, would be the host. And it was kind of a, a, uh, uh, I kind of look into some some creepy or esoteric or, or uh, a scary uh, subject, whether it was UFOs one week or ghosts the next week or the lost continent of, of Atlantis the, the week after that. You know, I was really hooked. I was always fascinated by by those types of things. Uh, as a kid, I always kind of loved the notion of of there being kind of a secret hidden world that that existed alongside the real world that we all walk around in every day and uh even though <laughs> it's like even though i don't uh, we'll take ufos for example i don't necessarily consider myself a a a believer in in aliens and ufos but i sure love the idea of it and i feel the same way about atlantis i don't necessarily uh, believe in in this kind of fanciful vision of atlantis but but I like to believe that that the legend was based on on something that it had some some basis in reality, um, uh, but it's just really fun to think about and it really fires up your imagination when you start to think when you start to to think of all the 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 kind of fanciful and more way out interpretations of Atlantis. 
So I think it was that that sort of sort of like childlike desire to learn more about about something that that was that was uh, secret and and mysterious that that kind of led me to 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 want to incorporate Atlantis into our action adventure um, movie. So one of the things that Tad told us is his, his first script was 150 pages. Oh yeah. Thereabouts. So. As a director, and this is always hard in any creative endeavor to to remove stuff. How do you approach slimming down any project, really, but Atlantis in particular, I guess, like to to, to get down to its essence? What, what's kind of your methodology there? <laughs> we always used to. I always used to joke that that <laughs> I just used to call it mowing the lawn, <laughs> mowing the story lawn, because. <laughs> We would, we would, uh, 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 yes, the, 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 the script, uh, came in very long and we had to work, uh, work pretty hard to kind of bring it down to, to, to a slightly more manageable number, but where the bulk of that type of work took place was in the storyboarding process. And, uh, we would, we would, uh, uh, you know, the movie, the movie would, would get boarded and, uh, you know, it would keep growing. It's like the more the more ideas that we incorporated into it, and the more elaborate the action sequences um, got, the longer the movie would get. And so, so we were constantly having to 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 step back, look at the whole thing, uh, you know, kind of kind of front to back, and say, okay, it, uh, we would look for for things that were redundant or things that that kind of slowed the progression of the main story. Um, and just we're constantly chipping away at it, constantly kind of mowing the lawn every every time it grew it grew too high, um, and and uh, sort of trying to boil the the story down to its most most important elements. It was hard because there were so many wonderful ideas we 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 welcomed. Um, in addition to Tab's great ideas, um, our visual development group was encouraged to just go wild. To just come up with 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 you know as many kind of outrageous concepts for creatures and and technology and 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 uh, monsters that 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 uh, the explorers could encounter on the course of their adventure, and you know we had enough for for an entire second movie, um, that that ultimately uh, uh, we we had to we had to discard and. But at the same time, we didn't want to. Uh, we didn't want to stifle that. We do, didn't want to stifle that 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 kind of uh, that kind of enthusiasm that was sort of bubbling over uh, uh, from from the artists who were, who were uh, first uh, visualizing the movie. But it did make for for us having to make some tough choices. It's like you know we had to ask ourselves things like, okay, what's more important: a scene where Milo bonds with and learns more about uh, the explorers or a scene where they all fight a gigantic lava whale. <laughs> and we're like, well, a lava whale would be really, really cool. And we, you know, would, would think about all these wonderful angles we could, we could get and wonderful, wonderful moments of action and, and, and excitement and how great it would be with the effects. But, but we, we would always have to, you know, put on the brakes and go okay. Uh, as fun as that sounds, is it really serving our 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 main story well? And and maybe a quiet moment where where uh, where Milo learns something about his companions uh, would be more effective here. I think the most kind of famous cut to come out of this movie is the original Viking prologue. Oh yes, 
And, uh, you know, that, that shot was essentially done. It, it's been released on both the DVD and as part of the, some of the video game tie-ins. But I want to kind of hear your side of the story of the day that that decision was made, kind of how that affected you. Um, <clears throat> well, I think we had just done a screening of the movie and uh, uh, realized kind of as a group that, that our, 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 uh, our heroine, basically Milo's love interest and kind of the, the co-star of the movie, uh, wasn't introduced until about 40, 45 minutes in, basically about half the movie's running time. And, and I think it became clear that it was going to be really hard to, to uh, uh, kind, of, kind of bond with her for the audience to kind of bond with her as a character and for us to kind of root for her. Um, if we'd, you know, never seen her before that. And it was, uh, uh, John Sanford. And I'm sure you probably heard the story. John Sanford, who was our head of story, um, who came up with a notion of, of what if we, I mean, he was, he was really, he knew he was walking out onto a limb because the Viking prologue was in color <laughs> and cutting something in color. That that's, that's definitely a pricey decision. Um, uh, but he pitched us this idea of, of starting the movie with Keita as a four-year-old girl and losing her mother. And, um, you know, we knew in the room that he was right as, as, as painful as it was, you know, we just kind of shook our heads and kind of went, God damn it. He's right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Gary, uh, turned it around literally overnight the following morning, Gary came in, Gary came in with, with, uh, with a bunch of, uh, uh, thumbnail storyboards that he had done that night because, because John's pitch like really fired him up. And he, 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 he came in in the morning and was like, guys, I, I did this overnight here. And, and it was terrific. I mean, basically, uh, Gary's, Gary's boards, Gary's little thumbnail boards on, on, uh, on uh, notebook paper were what became the prologue, uh, that you see in the movie. And, you know, I loved the Viking prologue. The Viking prologue was a great, I, I felt like it was a, it, we were really kind of, kind of telling the audience with the Viking prologue that this is a different kind of movie. And, and, uh, uh, it had kind of, it, it had mystery. It had action. It, it, it had, it had, uh, uh, a kind of an epic scale to it. And, uh, we thought it would be a great hook, you know, to get to 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 get the audience to uh, kind of invest in the movie and, and uh, go on a journey. But the more we screened the movie for ourselves, the more we realized, you know, to really care about it, the only way we're going to care about Atlantis. We can't just care about Atlantis in the abstract. We have to care about Atlantis. We have to care about Atlantis because a character that we're invested in lives in Atlantis. <laughs> And we realized that the only way we, we were going to be able to do that is to create a backstory for her and show that backstory on screen. And so, so what I've, what I've kind of wondered too is so in the middle of the movie, mostly like when the, when the King is dying and he's talking to Milo after Keita has gone, he's referencing that opening about what happened yeah. that day. Did that come after the change or was that always in the script and you realize, Oh, now we can actually flash back to what we're creating for this prologue. Um, I think I can't exactly remember the timeline of it. We worked in, in fairly chronicle, chronological order on the storyboards. So, so I, I want to say that, that, that John came up with his pitch before we, we actually storyboarded the death scene. 
So, so, uh, uh, I think knowing that, that, that we were going to do this, this, uh, this prologue that, that John suggested, um, enabled us to, to write that scene with the King and basically the King fills in the blanks, you know, for the audience who might not necessarily have understood Atlantean or didn't necessarily want to read the subtitles. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that was kind of the, that 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 scene, the the death scene of the king, uh, uh, where he's he's talking to Milo and explains what happened to to Milo's mother. Excuse me, explains what happened to Kita's mother and what happened uh, 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 with the crystal in Atlantis. That kind of pulls the movie together. It, it, it brings it brings the it brings like the the, the past into the present. Um, um, this this it brings the very beginning of the movie. Uh, 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 comes comes kind of rushing back and becomes kind of a vital part of of the storytelling, and where where the audience get finally goes, okay, that's why we saw that, that's why that was important, and it also the the I, I, one of the things that I loved was that after we did after we made the decision to do that prologue, we had already storyboarded the the. Uh, Milo's first encounter with Kida, where the the Atlanteans surround him, and and Kida removes her war mask and re, and reveals herself and heals him with a crystal. Um, that was already storyboarded. It may have even been animated, if if memory serves. Um, but suddenly, that moment of her unmasking took on much greater significance, and we actually got like an audible reaction from the audience for the first time. You know, something that had been in the movie the whole time, but got you know got obviously generated some some interest suddenly got got the audience to really lean forward where you could hear in the audience you know whisper to each other that was the little girl that's so (laughs) cool that's great so we Uh, made the right decision then yeah yeah so one of the things that that also is so unique about this movie out of a lot of the films disney had done throughout the 90s is that it, it is an original story an original mythology uh, you know, inspired by by actual mythology, but but nothing nothing direct. And I think a lot of what fed into the film working is so well uh, is the, the just the thought you guys put into how Atlantis itself functions from the biomes to the language. Mm-hmm. So, what was your involvement? In, like, like how deep in the weeds did you guys really intend to get with kind of creating all that kind of unsaid history for the film? That was actually, uh, I actually really enjoyed that part of the process. And we, we were uh, very much involved in it, in, in trying to, to, uh, in trying to, to create a version of Atlantis that uh, didn't exist in, in other forms of media, that hadn't existed in other forms of media. There, there, there have been science fiction films and, and, and the old fantasy film by George Powell, and, uh, uh, you know, endless history channel shows that, 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 uh, showcased Atlantis. Um, and we wanted ours to, to look and feel and sound different from all of them, which is why we, we, uh, you know, we sort of, we sort of were, were confronted with, okay, well, what is the architecture in this movie going uh, to be? What, what is Atlantis going to look like? And, it was just through research and 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 you know National Geographic magazines and and uh, 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 
encyclopedias and and the internet um that we started to set settle on a a architectural language uh for the atlanteans uh inspired mostly by by the temples in cambodia angkor wat um so so i and once we started getting into that process you know we 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 began to ask ourselves well what would they wear what would they eat uh, what language would they would they have a language and what would it be um and how have they survived down there you know for for all these centuries and so 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 we kind of tasked uh, a lot of our artists with with figuring some of this stuff out basically just just drawing ideas and pitching them uh uh for you know what what atlantean life and and the atlantean ecosystem uh would be and there's a key a very key piece of art that was done by by lisa keen who was our our background supervisor um where she showed she she basically showed this whole this whole kind of model created this whole kind of visual model that Atlant that that we based our atlantis on which which is this this kind of uh <laughs> we called it the the garden fountain <laughs> version um where basically the power of the crystal uh sort of caught, caught, uh, uh, pulls in water the water spills off off the sides of of the of the uh land mass that atlantis sits on and the water cools the lava the water cools the lava which creates clouds of steam which creates an atmosphere and moisture and it allows them to do, do a lot of things like like uh, grow plants and and uh, and things of that nature. Um, but she had thought of that all out. She she had, she drew it up and she brought it in and said and said, "What if it was like this?" And uh, uh, we kind of leaned in and looked at it. And she 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 talked about it. And the more she talked about it, the more we 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 thought that's terrific. Let's let's incorporate that into the movie. There are many little little uh, inventions and discoveries that uh, that individual artists made that made their way into the movie. I mean, this movie was really, you know, truly a, a, a collaboration and one where we really encouraged the artists to to, uh, you know, really follow their muse. And I think they were I think. Uh, I think they really enjoyed that because I think they got the chance to to kind of the. Uh, uh, use their imaginations in a really unfettered way, <laughs> and and uh, many times their work would would uh, would affect something directly in the movie and end up in the movie. It was like it was like Mike Mignola's drawings of flying stone fish that shoot lightning from their mouths. That was such a cool idea. It inspired an entire sequence. Uh, uh, you know the stone the the stone giants that 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 uh, form that that are the guardians of the city. Uh, who form the force field force shield wall with the using the crystal energy that was based on a drawing by Mike as well. And so, so that was really gratifying for me. Uh, so often, you know, when you work on an animated feature, there are lots of concepts that get discarded and don't make their way into the movie. And this, I, I think the same was true for this movie, but I think a lot more made it in, made it into the movie than, than not. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that made it special. So I want to talk a little bit about the the cast for the film because it's it's a huge cast with a lot of big names in it. Oh yeah. Uh, so I, I want to go back on something earlier you said. You talked about being being inspired by by Leonard Nimoy. Is that kind of what led to him? 
being cast in this film, or is that kind of one of those happy coincidences? Um, when we were uh, when we were thinking about uh, who to cast for the king, um, uh, Leonard Nimoy's name was was brought up by our, our uh, casting director, and you know we immediately said, "Oh my God, that would be great! Can we get him?" And <laughs> and, and she was reasonably sure that we could, and. Uh, uh, so, so he didn't audition or anything. We, we, we just found ourselves one day in a recording studio with Leonard Nimoy <laughs> and we had a bunch of artwork from the movie that, and, and, uh, uh, so we could, so we could show him what the movie looked like and, and pitch him the overall storyline. So he kind of, kind of understood his place in it. Uh, but he was a, he, you know, he was a total professional. He, he, he just came in, we turned the lights low and he, he kind of found the character. He sort of found the place in his voice that, that gave, that gave the King, uh, uh, his, that, that sort of sense of, of ancient wisdom and, and, and regret and sadness. Mm-hmm. He was, he was able to bring those qualities to it, which, which I, which I, uh, really loved. And he was Leonard Nimoy, <laughs> right? <laughs> which for me, you know, was a dream come true. I mean, uh, uh, I, I got to work with with a couple of, of my my childhood idols on this movie, Leonard Nimoy and, and James Garner. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, to be able to work with Spock and Jim Rockford, you know, what could be better? <laughs> so, for the actors who who had to speak in Atlantean. Uh, what was the process like of just kind of helping them navigate the language and, and try to speak it as a native? And conversely, I guess also speak English as a non-native. Uh, well, we, uh, um, that's a good question. Uh, uh, when Mark, uh, Mark Ockrand, who also worked on the Star Trek movies, developing the Klingon language, uh, came on to our movie to, to uh, develop the, the Atlantean alphabet and Atlantean uh, language. Um, he kind of created the guide to Atlantean pronunciation for that, that, that all of the actors followed. And when we would give them their scripts, uh, uh, their, if, if it was a sequence that was being spoken in Atlantean, it would include not only the English line, but also the Atlantean translation so that they could act the intention. So, so it's like, here, here's my intention. Here's the, here's the, the thought or the emotion I'm trying to convey right here in English. Here's the Atlantean, which is, which is a bunch of made up words, but I have to get that same feeling and that same intention that's, that's in these English words, just, just, just above the line, um, uh, to this, to this, uh, to this, uh, imaginary foreign language. And, uh, I, I want to say that it was, uh, it might've been Cree summer, who first uh, uh, found uh, kind of what the Atlantean accent might be. And I think everybody else kind of followed suit. She sort of just, she, she, we, we, we explained the, the explained to her that the, that the Atlanteans in our movie were meant to be kind of this, this mother culture. So they had qualities of, of, of like all the races on earth Um so they needed to sound so so we wanted the Atlanteans to sound to sound exotic, but not have like a really distinct uh, accent that would identify them as being from a particular you know uh, country or or, or or even continent. And uh, I think he, I think Cree mixed in a little Jamaican uh, with a little maybe Asian American with a, maybe a little American Indian. <laughs> There's uh, uh, 
it was it was a really interesting kind of hodgepodge, but but uh, uh, she she came up with it, and and uh, it was very pleasing to our ear, and and uh, and we ran with it, and and uh, the rest of the Atlantean dialogue, uh, uh, you know, kind of followed suit. Great. So one thing that's always bothered me about this movie, and I talked to Tab about this, and he, he was going to ask you, and then he just put me in touch. Oh, I said, good, I could go right to the source now. <laughs> this has bothered me, Kirk, since I've seen this kid. So this movie as a kid, I, I'm kind of like, the, I was always a bit of a romantic growing up, and it always bothered me. Is there a specific reason why Milo and Keita didn't actually kiss at the end? Believe it or not, there is. We, oh, we, yes, good. We, we, we talked about it internally, and and it... it um, <laughs> Uh, so many times over the course of this movie, we were trying to give the audience something that you wouldn't necessarily expect in a Disney movie. And that included, uh, what if we didn't do the big romantic, big, uh, what, what if we, uh, excuse me, uh, what if we didn't do the typical kind of Disney, Disney romantic kiss scene for the two characters at the end of the movie? What if we decided uh, you know the 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 embrace after 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 Kita uh, uh, disconnects from the crystal and 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 receives the receives the gift of the bracelet from the spirit of her mother. Um, we thought that embrace and then their their hands clasping when the, when they see the waters of, of Atlantis kind of recede and 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 the rest of this beautiful city is revealed. Uh, we thought okay maybe that's enough maybe it's enough to know that, the, that these two characters. Maybe we maybe we're not seeing them get together. But we have a pretty good idea that they're gonna get together. So I, I think I think it, it was twofold. I think it was our desire to not do something that was uh, uh, so typical and 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 kind of kind of expected for a Disney movie. And to all uh, the I think the other conversation that we that we had, if I recall, was. You know, we said this isn't a love story. This is the uh, Beauty and the Beast was a love story, and so so everything in the movie, you know, supports that. And and the the uh, it's all about those two characters falling in love, uh, being torn apart, and and being reunited. And it's about the you know transformative, the literal transformative power of love. Um, but uh, uh, this wasn't a story about that. This this was a story about about the discovery of of an ancient secret of an ancient city, and and the saving of of, of that ancient city. And uh, you know, Kida is is the key character who we uh, kind of latch onto to represent all of Atlantis. Um, but the movie's not necessarily about about. You know the story of how how Milo the nerd got a got a hot girlfriend. <laughs> um, like I said, it's implied when you get when you get to the end and you see and you see uh, 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 Milo with uh, wearing Atlantean garb and he's got a tattoo. I always thought, okay, this is this is probably a few months into his stay, and I think I think uh, uh, he and Kita are an item now. Even even if I didn't necessarily see them uh, see them waltz or or kiss, <laughs> I accept your answer. Okay. <laughs> so just to kind of wrap up Atlantis, then I just want to know, you know, nineteen years on, uh, what does this movie mean to you? What is its personal legacy for you? 
Um, well, I'm, I'm, it's, it's something that I'm really, it's, it's a movie that I'm really proud of. Uh, I, I really, you know, I have to admit the, the, the studio at the time took a real chance, uh, letting us do it. And, um, they gave us a, a, a lot of leeway. There were, there were certainly, you know, battles we fought with, with, with management at that time, mostly about, uh, uh, kind of, uh, <laughs> The euphemism at the time was called level of activity. That means violence. <laughs> <laughs> I can use that my kids. We had a lot of conversations about that. Because <laughs> <laughs> this movie, this movie has a body count. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm be watching it. I think at this time, like, yeah. But believe it or not, like one it. of the things. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll actually answer your question, but I have to. Sh- I have to share share kind of kind of a grim anecdote. Um, uh, while we were, we were animating the, the final battle with, with Rourke and his, and his, uh, stormtroopers on, on, on their gliders and the fish with the lightning, um, you know, and we had, uh, we had Rourke with his machine gun and Helga with her pistol. And there was a lot of, of, a lot of gunfire, um, uh, Columbine happened and we had to have a really serious discussion with with uh, with our management within animation and with with the with the studio at large about how we are how we're going to handle uh, gun violence in this movie, and we had to make some some uh, creative decisions, and we actually had to reduce some of it, and we had to do things like we had to do things like like oh like like show a character aim but not necessarily show a character fire. There there were a lot of little editing tricks that we did. To, to try to to try to soften it a little bit, um, so we we you know we had to respond to that very real world concern. Uh, yet the movie still holds up. I mean, even under under the circumstances, it still holds up and feels like uh, a really fun, thrilling action adventure. So I'm glad that we could contribute. I'm, I'm back to your earlier question. I'm I'm I feel most proud uh that i was able to to be part of of contributing to the disney legacy um a a type of of uh animated film uh that they hadn't done before that didn't look or sound or feel like any animated film they ever made over their over their very long history um it shares a lot in common with some of the live action films that were made back in in walt disney's day which was certainly our goal um, but as far as uh, an animated movie uh, is concerned, um, I'm proud of the fact that we we uh, delivered something that was uh, very different. Um, I think uh, in 2001, I think for some people it might have been too different. I think I think that might be the, that might not hold true today. Um, uh, but but you know certainly when it came out, you know critics were divided, and and on its initial release. You know, uh, uh, it didn't do as well at at, uh, at the box office as as uh, some of the other films had done, uh, but it's still something that that I'm very proud of, and and it's been really gratifying over the years, over the long life that this film had after its initial release, to to meet with fans and to to uh, read chatter, you know, kind of on on uh, on on internet sites and on YouTube about how much this movie meant to people, meant to people when they were growing up. Um, 
that just delights me that 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 thrills my soul because that's the reason why I do it. I mean, I, I, I wanted this movie to be the to be the type of movie that I would have loved as a kid. And when I hear people say that that this is the movie that I loved the most as a kid, to me, that's everything. That's the reason I do it. And so I'm, I'm really happy to 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 have been involved in making a movie like that. Well, good news, because this is the movie I love most as a kid. <laughs> Thank you. And as an adult, for that matter. So. Thank you very much. So I just want to, because we, we already did an episode of Hunchback, I, I just want to touch on it a little bit uh, here. I had, I had two kind of really specific topics I wanted to get into with you real quick here. The first is um, I wanted to hear a little bit about your experience on your research trip to Paris and the tours you guys got of the Notre Dame Cathedral itself and in Paris as a whole. Yeah, well, uh, uh, that was actually terrific. We... we uh, Gary, myself, uh, uh, our producer, and our uh, all of our department heads, our artistic leadership, we went to France for for a couple of weeks and basically did like the medieval tour of of, of Paris. I, I think there, the, amazingly, there's a lot of medieval buildings that still exist in Paris, and so uh, we went there armed with cameras and sketchbooks. And uh, we had we had local guides taking uh, taking us around and explaining and, and pointing out the architecture to us and explaining about what life was like in medieval Paris. Um, we got a we, we got a wonderful backstage tour of, of Notre Dame. Um, we, we were able to they, they took us into places that the, the tourists usually don't get to go. Uh, one of the things that, that, that I remember uh, kind of kind of. Uh, best about uh, that trip to Paris. Um, I went to an organ recital that was actually in the Notre Dame Cathedral, and I went in and I was seated in you know in this beautiful cathedral. I could see the amazing stained glass window, and this uh, organ recital started, and I just got goosebumps. I was just covered in goose flesh, and I realized I was like, oh my god. The movie needs to feel exactly how I'm feeling right in this moment. <laughs> I need to remember this feeling. <laughs> and um, uh, amazingly, uh, it did. We we achieved that. I I held on to that feeling, and was able to was able to to help communicate that to um, our artists, our our lyricist and composer. Um, we were all very much on the same on on the same wavelength, and. Uh, uh, I think that trip to Paris uh, uh, was was invaluable, you know, for the, for that organ recital alone. <laughs> that was the key to the whole movie for me. So the other sequence from the movie I really wanted to focus on because it's my personal favorite, and I, I think it's it's become like like for the fans of the film, you know, a favorite sequence is Hellfire. Oh yeah. How hard was it to keep that in the movie? Because I think it's quite possibly one of the darkest things to happen in a Disney film. What was it like, like when you were creating it, were you like, Oh, we're pushing it. Let's see what happens. And, and, and like, what was that fight like to get it in there? Well, um, um, uh, the, the, the moment was the, you know, sort of the moment that was carved out, carved out in the movie was for, was for, uh, Frollo to, to express his, his, uh, the conflict that he felt in his soul between his his desire to be to be upright and moral and his and his physical desire for, for Esmeralda and that comes right out of the book and uh, uh, we knew that was a really important uh, component of Frollo's character and we didn't want to soften that and we, we, we thought is there a way we can do 
you know, a PG version of this and, and, and have it be okay. And, uh, uh, Stephen Schwartz and Alan Menken, uh, created the tune, uh, Hellfire. I think Stephen's lyrics really drew upon, uh, the original material, the, the, the source material very, very strongly. Um, uh, and Alan's music, it was one of the most powerful things I think Alan has, has ever written. It was just, it was just, uh, when we heard their demo of it, we were like, Oh man, again, it was one of those goosebump moments. Um, so we said, you know, we, we embraced it. We thought, we thought it, it could potentially be really cool. Um, provided that we, we provided that, uh, uh, we really wanted to, to play it, uh, with, with, with a lot of, we, we didn't want to just play it straight by that. I just didn't want a character standing there walking around singing. We wanted it to be, you know, kind of explore this guy's unraveling mind and, and, and do it and do it in a, in a, in a really visual, uh, and sometimes kind of abstract way. And, uh, we gave the assignment to, to our, our two Parisian, uh, storyboard artists, uh, uh, Paul and Gaetan Britzi. Um, and, uh, they storyboarded it and they, they roughed out their first version of it and they pitched it to us along with the music. Basically the music was just playing on a cassette and, uh, they, they went through, they went through the boards and pitched through each, each, each panel in time with the music. And Gary and I were both slack jawed. So the imagery that they came up with was, was so powerful. And, and, you know, they were like, well, this is, uh, we were inspired by the music. We could, you know, this is, what else were you going to draw? Yeah, exactly. And, and, but, but the thing that they were worried about the most was if they had gone too far and they asked, they, they, they asked us, uh, so do you think it's too much? And, and we, we said, no, we think it's wonderful. Um, but we knew that, that, that potentially it might be a hard sell. For for our bosses at that time, that that, that it might be too intense. Um, but uh, amazingly, we we uh, we ended up uh, uh, basically pitching it to the top guy. We we I remember when we pitched it to Michael Eisner, and Michael Eisner uh, 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 was a fan of the of the book, and I think I think that was uh, one of the reasons why. Um, uh, we were able to, to include a, a sequence like that in the film because it felt true to the spirit, to the spirit of the original. Um, so it, yeah, we, we actually got, got a lot of support and fortunately, you know, had, had an amazing song and, and some really talented story artists. And then uh, Kathy Zelinsky's beautiful animation. She animated that entire sequence herself. She was like, this is mine. Wow. One person <laughs> I, did that. Yeah. yeah wow. She did. Um, uh, the only thing I don't think she animated were those red robed judges, but all the Frollo, she did all of it. That's incredible. The entire song. Yeah. She, she, that was her kind of tour de force. <laughs> awesome. So again, kind of similar to, to the last question, like, like what, what is Hunchback's legacy to you? What, what is it that, that you take that film uh, with you today? Um, for me, and this kind of goes to, to, uh, back to what I said earlier, uh, for me, Hunchback is 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 the movie where I feel I feel like um, uh, I got uh, I felt like collectively, both me and all, all the and Gary and all the the artists I got to work with, I think I think we we uh, 
that's the movie where I feel like we, we came closest to achieving what our original vision for the project was. It's like what you see up on screen really reflects, uh, uh, our, uh, really reflects our thinking and our, and our, and our taste and our judgment and, and, and our, our, uh, our ideas for how to visualize the movie. We, we, we were, were fortunate in, in some ways that, that, uh, uh, a large portion of the movie was uh, put into production when when Disney was going through a, a massive upheaval in terms of, of upper level management. Um, so <laughs> their eyes were kind of focused elsewhere, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so I think we got to 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 uh, take a few more risks than we than uh, 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 than we typically would. I, I don't think we were second guessed as much. Um, as a result of that. Um, but, you know, to give, to give, uh, uh, you know, at the time our, our bosses in animation were, were Peter Schneider and Tom Schumacher and they were very, they were very supportive throughout this entire movie. I think they believed in it. I think they, I think they really, uh, uh, strongly connected with, with our main character Quasimodo and, and felt that it was a really good story to, to tell the story of an outcast and, and his journey to, 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 to acceptance of himself and his, and the acceptance of others. Um, so they very, they very, very much believed in the kind of underlying message of the film. So I think, I think uh, that's one of the reasons they gave us a lot of support, but yeah, I just feel like we, um, when I talked about that, 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 that moment in the cathedral where I heard the organ recital and thought to myself, I want the movie to feel like this. Um, I, I always, I always go back to that. I feel, I feel like we were, it's the movie where I felt like I was, it, it was the, the the purest translation of my initial kind of kind of emotional reaction to the material to the finished film on, on screen. Is there a particular scene or sequence that you think kind of best encapsulates that for you? Um, I think God help the outcasts is a big one for me. I feel like I feel like that's that's the whole movie in a nutshell uh, uh, in, in terms of of of. Uh, uh, what the what the movie is 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 trying to say to what uh, Victor Hugo was trying to say. Um, I th- I feel like that sequence uh, uh, very much uh, communicates that in a really in a really emotional way. And uh, the execution was was uh, uh, was again really beautiful. That was another one where where the the supervising animator Tony Fachule Tony Fachule. Um, uh, did all the Esmeralda scenes in in uh, in God Help the Outcasts? He might he might have handed off maybe one or two of the ones where she's kind of walking, you know, far from camera. Mm-hmm. But all the close up singing stuff, all the stuff with her and Jolly, uh, uh, that was all Tony, and and he did uh, such a beautiful job. And and Dave gets uh, Dave gets his art direction in that sequence really, you know, literally shines through. There's that beautiful image of, of Esmeralda uh, standing. Uh, in the pool of, of, of colored reflect, reflected light from the stained glass window. And that was another one that, that, that image that, which is, which is kind of the last, uh, uh, the last note that, that Esmeralda sings, uh, that, that frame is based on a very early uh, painting Dave gets, which was about, you know, that Dave gets did, which was about, you know, four inches wide and, and, and three inches tall. <laughs> <laughs> this tiny little thumbnail painting that he did of, of uh, Esmeralda in this pool of light. 
and we were like, that's beautiful. That's got to go in the movie. And, and we, lo and behold, of course, we found a place for it. We, that was the, 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 uh, kind of the high point of the song. Um, so yeah, for me, I think, I think that that's the sequence that resonates the most with me. Great. Well, Kirk, I, tell you, I can't thank you enough for joining me tonight. I could do this for hours, but I don't <laughs> want to take up too much of your time. But, you know, being that we're a podcast called 90s Disney, I imagine we'll get to Beauty and the Beast uh, sometime. And hopefully we can have you back on to talk about that film as well. Sure. Happy to do it. This was Excellent. a lot of fun. Good. Yeah, so I, so uh, if, if you have anything upcoming, any projects you want to kind of uh, let everyone know about or where they can follow you, uh, let our audience know. Oh, uh, definitely, definitely, I will. I'm, I'm, I'm working on a a a, a, a CG uh, film. It's, it's, it's a very modestly budgeted uh, CG film uh, that Universal is producing, um, and that will probably go uh, directly to streaming. Um, they haven't announced it yet, so I can't, I can't really tell you the title, but, <laughs> but I am. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Kirk, thank you once again. Uh, take care. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, thank you so much. Have a great evening. Thank you. So there you have it, guys. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that little bit of bonus content. Hopefully, uh, you know, we could swing something like this. We'll just drop a few little extra episodes here and there. I mean, we're still, you know, primarily a monthly podcast. That's when the uh, the big, you know, point zero episodes come out. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, great talking to him. He's super gracious and... Uh, you know, very bizarre, Mike, to be growing up. You, know, you grow up, you're like, oh, Being the Beast, Hunchback, Nerd, Atlantis. These are some of my favorite films. Oh, hey, you, like, are mostly responsible for making them. Uh, thanks for talking to me on Skype. Right, I mean, especially when you're kids, like, you, you just, you, you think of these people who make these movies that just kind of, like, you know, almost aliens, right? Like, they're so far beyond us in a way. And, no, they're great people who will come and talk to us and... They love what they do, and they're super gracious. And it's awesome. Yeah, and that, that's what I got from both Tab and Kirk. Like, they, they really do love just hearing people tell stories about how much they like these movies and, and what they mean to them. So, uh, you know, like I said, th- this has uh, long been my favorite Disney animated film, Atlantis. So it's uh, it's really cool not only to talk to him about it, but to get to, you know, in person thank him for it. So uh, that was great. So, again, thank you, Kirk. Thank you, Tab. Uh, you know, hopefully in the future when, when we're able to find people for the right topics we can get some more guests and interviews on the show if you guys like it. If you have any ideas for someone, you know, don't don't, don't say, oh, you should uh, get Michael J. Fox on the show, but if you know of any, like, Imagineers you think might be willing to uh, play ball with us, you know, send us an email, tweet at us uh, hook us up, because we'd love to talk to them Absolutely, and don't forget our next uh, full number episode I guess is going to be on the Yacht and Beach Club, and that'll be hitting sometime in early May so yeah, we'll, shoot, we'll shoot for May 1, but times are weird right now. Times Schedules could get a little wonky. Even, even though we're not doing anything, we're all seemingly really busy. Yeah, It's right. very strange. What, what is up with that? Uh, it's, it's interesting. But, you know, in the meantime, uh, check us out at 90sdisney.com. Make sure you uh, follow our Twitter and Facebook links from there. And uh, subscribe to us. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Googles. What's Googles called? I don't know. The Google one. Nice. You know, you'll, you'll get a link and tell your friends to check out 90s Disney in the meantime uh, you guys take care and we will see you at the shores of Stormalong Bay there you go